you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me once again to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. If you're using one of our Bibles from one of the chairs in front of you, you'll find our text on page 774. And after you find Jonah chapter 1, I would like you to flip over to the New Testament as well, to Mark chapter 4. Put your finger there in the uh, Pew Bible, it's page number 839. Mark chapter 4, but we'll begin with Jonah chapter 1 this morning. After you read the Bible enough times, it becomes clear that God doesn't leave things to chance. But more than that, through His providence, He actually lays down the tracks of people's lives and events so that His plans become even more clear once Christ Himself comes. And this is especially evident in the book of Jonah. And this morning what we want to do is highlight this connection between the old and the new. We want to see how Jesus in fact comes as the good and better Jonah. But first we need to understand why a good and better Jonah was needed. We need to see where Jonah failed and why it was that Jesus had to come to succeed in his place. And again we will... Uh, first look at Jonah chapter 1, and we're going to pick up the story at verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to Yahweh the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to him and made vows." May God bless the reading of His Word. This morning as we begin, we want to set out our course and we want to see three things from this passage and as it stands in contrast to Mark chapter 4, three things about Jonah, about Jesus, and about ourselves. Three things that will force us ultimately to examine our own hearts as we seek to live in service to God. If you're taking notes, the outline looks a little more uh, complicated this morning, but I promise that it will become clear uh, as we proceed. The first thing we want to notice is the failure of a prophet. 
the failure of a prophet. Uh, as we look to the life of Jonah, we see that he failed, uh, at least in this instance, as a prophet of God. Specifically, we see him failing in three ways in our text. First of all, he was running instead of serving. He was running instead of serving. We've been in Jonah for a couple of weeks now, and we probably know well how it begins. Jonah is God's prophet. He receives a call to go and serve God by going to the capital city of Nineveh, the capital of a four-nation Assyria, that he might proclaim God's coming judgment because of the sinfulness of their sins. But Jonah refuses to go. He is called to go to Nineveh, and in fact, he goes the exact opposite direction on a boat, fleeing from God's call. As a prophet, Jonah is to serve wherever God calls him to go. In this case, it was by going and teaching people about God and His character, people that would have known very little about the God of Israel. He is supposed to go to them as a missionary. The problem is he's not willing to cross the line of his own prejudices and preferences. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, flat out. It's not as if it's inconvenient. It's not as if... Uh, you know, well, it may take me away. He just doesn't want to go because he knows there are pagan, sinful people in that city that he believes deserves judgment and death and not salvation. And as we look later in chapter 4, we will see Jonah's biggest fear, the biggest reason for not going to Nineveh is that these people will hear the message, they will turn and repent as the living God, he will be gracious and merciful and compassionate to them, and they'll be saved. And Jonah doesn't want that. He doesn't want the salvation of sinners, the pagan Ninevites. And so he doesn't serve God as he should. Instead, he runs from the call. It, it's astonishing. I mean, frankly, there's nothing like it in the rest of the prophetic books. You have a man who is meant to be a prophet, to go and to serve, to be a part of God's workings in the world. And he says, no thanks. He... he disobeys in the boldest of ways and runs from service, thus failing as a prophet. But secondly, he fails in that he is despairing instead of trusting. He is despairing instead of trusting. The Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. It's pretty violent. It's, you know, a reminiscent of uh, in our house last night with the wind blowing and things creaking. I didn't know we had so much stuff that could creak in our house last night. The mariners are afraid. Seasoned sailors are afraid and each began crying out to his God. It's no normal sea, uh, sea storm. They began hurling cargo, the most precious possessions over the ship in order to, to lighten it for them. They are in a state of panic. They're fearing for their lives. And in contrast, we read Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. I mean, there is chaos going around this man, and he's just sleeping, just having a little lie down. Now, why is he doing that? I mean, why is he asleep? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, is it nighttime? I doubt it. I mean, what kind of sailor sailing ship takes off in the middle of the night? I mean, that's when you know bad weather is more likely to come. I doubt it. What's he been doing all day? I mean, you know, if he'd gotten up early and he'd had the axe to grind all day, okay, I could see a nap, but what has he been doing? Walking around looking for a ship. That's it. Hey, you're, you know, where are you going? You know, I'd like to go to Tarshish, as far away from Nineveh as I can get. I mean, how much work is that? Not much. So he can't be tired. Why is he asleep? Well, think about this. Several years ago, I was watching a crime drama called Homicide, Life on the Streets. You might remember it. 
In the very first episode, there is a young officer who has just been promoted to homicide detective. And he has been assigned to uh, the kind of hot shot at the moment in the homicide department. He has the highest rate of success uh, in, in uh, catching criminals and closing cases. And they're working their first case together and they've picked up this guy and they left him in the interrogation room for four hours. And now they're standing behind the glass uh, looking at this guy and he's asleep. And the one guy says, why do you think he's asleep? And he says, well, he's been in there for four hours. And he goes, no, 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 no. He says, rule number four, a guilty man left alone always falls asleep. A guilty man left alone always falls asleep. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Jonah is sleeping because he knows he's guilty before God. He is aware of his sin and has put him in a place of despair. He's sleeping for the same reason he ran in the first place. He begrudges the fact that God sent him to Nineveh. He isn't at peace. He isn't at rest. He's wrapped up in anger and despair and not knowing what else to do. What we see others to do in the scriptures, perhaps you yourselves have done, he just goes to sleep. He tries to drown out the circumstances of his life by a sleep of sorrow. Jonah fails as a prophet because he despairs of his task rather than trusting God in the midst of it. He doesn't trust that this is God's good and wise plan. He doesn't trust that God knows what he's doing and sending him to Nineveh. No, he's frustrated. He's angry. He's upset. And he's despairing because he knows on one level it's wrong of him to do this. He is supposed to be a prophet of God and he is steeped in sin. So what does he do? He just goes to sleep. He just tries to drown out his problems with a despairing heart instead of a trusting heart. Finally, we see that Jonah fails by showing indifference instead of concern. He shows indifference instead of concern. The Lord hurls a great storm at the boat and Jonah sleeps. The captain wakes him up and tells him to pray and Jonah stays quiet. He's totally indifferent to the situation. He's not even in Nineveh. And he's already looking at these pagans and saying, I don't care about them. I care nothing about these men. He's done nothing to try and help them. In fact, it's not until they cast lots to try and figure out what the cause of the disaster is, who it is that the lot falls on him, and then suddenly he's forced to engage with them. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? I mean, in the ancient world, that's about all you needed to know in that situation. I mean, that, that was your full bio. What does he say to them? I am a Hebrews. Uh, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh. Now, again, our English Bibles, for whatever reason, uh, picking up, I think, on ancient Jewish tradition, they often translate in, in uh, small capitals the Lord. That's the name of God in the Old Testament. When He says to Moses, "I am who I am," uh, it is Yahweh in Hebrew, the Lord. And it's important we don't just see the Lord because uh, here, because a lot of pagans would have called their God the Lord. He called Baal the Lord, okay? Everybody said their God was Lord. Here it is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Not surprisingly, verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For, they, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. These guys are like, are you crazy? Your God is the God of heaven. He made the sea and the land. He, he is sovereign and, and reigns over both. And you think you're going to run away from him? I mean, what is the matter with you? Are you so stupid? Even these pagans realize Jonah's run is foolish. 
And it may look like Jonah begins to show a bit of compassion to these guys. He's like, you know, oh, you know, you, you can imagine, ho- you know, Hollywood doing it. You know, this real dramatic scene and the wind and, and the, the rain splashing down and they zoom in on Jonah's face and he's like, throw me over the side and the winds will stop. You know, I mean, you can just picture that it's kind of n- this noble kind of thing. That's not what's happening here at all. He doesn't care about these guys. This is not some noble sacrifice. I mean, if you really care about the sailors, why don't you just repent? Well, why don't you just cry to God and say, I'm wrong. I'm wrong for what I've done. You know, take my life, but spare these sailors. Why don't you just say, turn the boat around? You know, take me back to port. Take me back to Joppa so I can go in the right direction. And then God will be happy for this. Why does he just beg for mercy, acknowledging his sin? Because he doesn't care about the sailors. He didn't preach to them. He didn't pray for them. He didn't go show concern for them in any way since he's been on board. Jonah just went below deck and went to sleep. And even when he is forced to tell them about Yahweh, it's a twisted ver- version of, of who he is, isn't it? I mean, what does he say? Human sacrifice and, and he'll stop being angry. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. I mean, that's not, that's not characteristic of the Lord, even the Lord that he will talk about later in the book. It shows him to be, to be a fickle, grumbling deity, no better than the false gods, the idols that these guys worship. The reality is here, he is willing to die rather than repent of his sin. I mean, that's the sad reality. Telling him, telling him to throw him overboard is nothing less than a suicidal attempt to flee his sin and God's mission. You say, how do you know that? Because the same thing happens in Jonah 4. What we'll see at the end of the book, he says, I'd rather be dead than see sinners receive God's grace. That's what he says. And that's what we see now. He's willing to put, as it were, his money where his mouth is. It's in fact an ironic twist. These pagan sailors are more honorable than the prophet himself. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. The sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me this great tempest has come upon you. What do they do? They say, great, overboard. No, look at verse 13. Nevertheless... The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Even they say, no, 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 that's just, that's just wrong. We're not going to kill you to save our own necks. And they begin rowing, rowing. Notice, Jonah doesn't put his hand to the oars. Doesn't care. So what if he dies? So what if he dies? He'd rather be dead than do what God wants. It's an amazing twist of irony that it's God's prophet, his representative on earth, that is less honorable, less godly than these pagan sailors who know nothing of Yahweh. That's where Jonah is at this point in the story. In many ways, he has hit bottom. He is in every way, as it were, a failure as a prophet. He's run from his call. He's despairing of his situation. And he cares nothing for the people he's to be preaching to or even God's reputation among them. It is not a pretty picture of the prophetic office. Nevertheless, the failure of Jonah here helps sets the stage for Jesus. He shows us the need there is even among the people who will be closest to God for a better prophet to come. And, and not just the need for a better prophet who wouldn't fail, but also the need for a savior to atone for sins, even the sins of Jonah's very life. And so that's what we want to see in this second point. We've not just saw the failure of a prophet, but now we want to see the success of a Savior. And here's what I'll ask you to turn over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And we'll start reading at verse 35. On that day when the evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. 
And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Stories are far too similar not to be read in light of one another. And I mean, even down to the sleeping on the cushion. So as we begin in Jonah, understanding this context, we now want to see how this story is connected to this other account from, from Mark's gospel about the life of Jesus. And what we see very simply is that where Jonah failed, Jesus succeeded. He is not just a superior example, but he is a superior savior. And so what we see, first of all, is that Jesus is serving instead of running. Jesus is serving instead of running. In contrast to Jonah stands Jesus. You notice how the passage began in verse 35, on that day. What day is this? Is it just the day the storm came? No, it's the day that you read about earlier in the chapter. And what do you see? Minute after minute, hour after hour, all day long, Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. He's standing up before the masses telling them about God and His kingdom. He has been serving sinners all day by teaching them what the kingdom of God is like. Now, now don't let the weight of that be lost on you. Here is Jesus, God the Son. God made flesh. He left the glory of heaven to enter human history as a human being. Deserves to immediately be crowned and enthroned as king over every nation on the earth but instead goes down by the seaside out onto a boat and gives himself to the teaching of the masses of people to the point that he's so exhausted, he just says, well, we, get, you know, we got to get out of here. And he just literally collapses asleep in the boat. Now, what's the difference here? The difference is this. One prophet ran away from his calling because of preferences and prejudices, while another embraced his calling and served despite humiliation and hardships. Jesus doesn't run away from ministry. He gladly serves even to the point of exhaustion. Even to the point of exhaustion. We could say lots of it, but let's, let's keep moving. The second way in which he is successful is this. He is trusting instead of despairing. He is trusting instead of despairing. Jonah was asleep on the boat because he was a sinner despairing of his sin. Jesus was also asleep in the boat. Now, why was he asleep? Why is he asleep in the boat? Another example. The other day I was listening to an interview um, CD with an, uh, one of the pastors there was a man by the name of Greg Gilbert and he was talking about teaching his two-year-old how to swim, uh, I think while they were on vacation. And he said that uh, you know, they had all the, the floaty stuff on him and he was in the water and they kept trying to coax the little boy, uh, jump in the water and daddy will catch you. And, you know, he would get close. No, 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 no. He'd back away. He said, come on, come on, come on. And so finally, the kid jumps. And it is the water. And the dad catches him. He has a blast. And it doesn't stop for the rest of the day. I mean, if you've seen kids, you know how this is. They're out of the water. They go to the edge. They jump in the water. Dad catches them. And they're like, again, 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 again. And, and, and he has such a blast that actually uh, Gilbert and his wife began to be wondering, you know, 
maybe we're actually not doing him a service here. Maybe he's actually not afraid of the water like he needs to be, and he's going to just go diving in, and it's not going to go well. Um, and, and so they began to watch him a little bit more, and what they realized is the little boy would not go anywhere near the water unless Daddy was in the water. And what became clear is that the source of the boy's confidence to jump in to this pool was this. He trusted his daddy. He trusted his daddy. Likewise, Jesus is sleeping in the boat because he trusted his heavenly father. He trusted God the Father would preserve him and his disciples until the appointed time. He trusted that his Father was sovereign over all things, not just the sparrow that falls in the field where no one sees, but also the storms on the sea. He knew the cross was ahead of him. He knew the disciples would see it. He didn't have to be afraid of the storm. Instead, he trusted in his Father to work out his perfect plan even when the immediate circumstances looked like he wasn't doing it. I mean, imagine the disciples in the boat and, they're, and, they're, and you know, they're shaking Jesus. Don't you love us? Don't you care about us? In that moment, what are they thinking? God's perfect plan is not happening. This can't be part of God's perfect plan. Look at this. We're getting ready to die. I mean, water's coming in the boat. We're getting thrashed about. This is crazy. Jesus, though, doesn't have that problem. He's asleep. He's asleep resting in the care of His heavenly Father. Furthermore, it's important to see that though Jonah gets thrown over the side and it saves the sailors, Jesus doesn't go over the side of the boat. What does He do? He just stands up and rebukes the storm. He stands up and says, be still, be quiet. And then, I mean, can you imagine just seeing that? I mean, wind and perhaps lightning, rain beating down. I mean, the waves are such that literally they're lapping on the side of the boat. And then all of a sudden, Jesus stands up, which as far as I know, you're never supposed to stand up in a boat. doesn't bother him one bit. And he says, essentially, shut up. And that's exactly what the storm does. Nothing. No more wind, no more rain. And the waves just kind of settle down and there's the boat. And yet, and yet, Jesus will be plunged into a sea not long after this. Not into a physical body of water, but the overwhelming sea of God's wrath. He will be plunged down to death under the fullness of that just fury that sinners might be saved. Here he just speaks a word. And by his authority, he commands the oceans to calm. He commands the winds to stop and the rain to cease. And he saves physically his disciples, even as God stopped the storm and saved those pagan sailors. But a far more profound salvation is coming from Jesus. And in light of that, Jonah 1 verse 14, in in my mind, becomes all the more potent, all the more powerful, all the more foreshadowing. They, they call, the sailors call out, to the, call out to God, Oh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. Think about, think about that in light of Jesus' work. Christ was innocent, yet considered guilty in our place. We are guilty of His death. It was for our sin that He died. And yet through his death, we are made right with God. We are forgiven by him and all of this pleased the Father. It's amazing. Jesus died for sinners in obedience to the mission that God had for him and he did it all the time, trusting his heavenly Father, trusting that sinners would be saved and that he would not be left in death but be raised up to life again. 
Finally, Jesus stands in contrast to Jonah because he showed concern instead of indifference. He showed concern instead of indifference. The contrast here couldn't be more obvious. Jesus is exhausted, rightly so. He's not just having a nap. He probably may not even eaten or slept all day. He's just been teaching, 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 and he passes out from exhaustion. The disciples are crying out for help, and what does he do? He stands up and calms the storms. And here the kicker is, he didn't have to do that. He could have just said, trust your heavenly Father, and went back to sleep. And left them rowing, struggling, scared, knowing we're not going to die. We're not going to die. But he didn't do that, did he? He was patient and loving and showed concern for his disciples and got up and rebuked the storm. Now, he also rebuked the disciples. Do you really have no faith in me yet? After all that you've seen even at this point, you just don't trust me? And that's all he could have done. But no, he also calm the storm. He cared for them and continued to patiently train him to be his disciples. So here we have two men, one selfish, the other a servant, one a failed prophet, the other a successful savior. And what's amazing is that both stories end in the same place. Here's the third and final thing we want to see before we get to our application this morning, the God-given results of ministry. Here's where both of our stories converge. Yes, there are some differences, but it's amazing that they both end with the same result. Listen again to Jonah chapter 1. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You go back and you read the account. They're afraid of the storm. They're really afraid of the storm. But after the Lord God calms the storm, they're even more afraid. They're more fearful after the storm is done than even during the storm. And what about these sacrifices and vows? What's this all about? Well, if you listen to Isaiah chapter 19, you see the Lord promises to reveal Himself even to the wicked Egyptians and bring salvation to them. And He says, the prophet says, the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. It's the same language. What is it? It's Old Testament language of conversion. I mean, these sailors, they don't know everything there is to know about the Lord. They don't know even properly how to offer a sacrifice, but their faith is sincere. They make vows. We will fear Yahweh, this God of Israel. We will serve Him. And then Mark 4, Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. He said, peace, be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Same thing. The disciples are afraid of the storm, but they're more afraid after the storm. The sailors know enough of this God, Yahweh, to fear and worship him. The disciples are beginning to realize what we know, that this was Yahweh in the flesh. Who then is this? I think it's in Matthew. It says, what kind of a man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The sailors fear the Lord after they see him calm the storm. The disciples fear the Lord when they see Jesus is Lord of the storm. Both have a greater fear after the storm ends. And this is a fear that is different. It's not just being afraid of him. 
Being afraid of God means we know something of Him, but we don't actually know Him. Fearing the Lord, as the Bible puts it, is something else. It's not being afraid. It's standing back in awe and worship of the living God. It's knowing He is the sovereign King over all His creation, and you are just a small part of it. It's knowing your place in the world and the, and the wise reality of following after God, obeying Him, trusting Him, knowing He is worthy of that love and obedience and worship. So there you have it. You have a successful Savior, you have a failed prophet, and at the end you have both of them through the power of God evoking fear, a godly and good fear. So what about us this morning? We've seen the contrast between these two men, Jonah and Jesus, but what about us? What, what should the response be? First and foremost, we should have the same response as the disciples and the failures. sailors. We should fear the Lord. That is, we should put our faith and our trust and our confidence in Him for salvation. But more than that, once we've seen Jesus as our Savior, once we have entrusted our lives to Him, then it's also good and right for us to follow His example. And we want to make sure we keep these things in order, don't we, and that we don't reverse it. We're not following Jesus' example in order to be saved. It's after we're saved. It's after we're accepted by Him. It's after atonement has been made. Then we follow His good and godly example. We keep His commands because Jesus is Lord. He is the King over all things, even our lives. And the supreme calling that exists on our life is simply this, to continue Jesus' ministry. Not to die to atone for sinners, but to call them to repent and see them become disciples of Christ. So the big question is, are you doing that? And how are you doing that? In seeking to obey the call of God, does your life look more like Jesus or Jonah? Are you serving or running? How are you serving the Lord? If you're one of His people, a Christian, then He's put a call on your life. And there's a, there's a real general call. It's actually pretty involved and weighty. You read things all the time, very clear, every Christian. Proclaim the gospel, pursue holiness, commit to His church. Not just generically, but specifically with money and time and love for His people. I mean, you know, if you just kept all of the very clear and obvious commands of the Bible, you'd have quite a bit to work on. But beyond that, he, He's given each of us a unique life, hasn't He? He's put a unique calling on all of us. And the question is, are you running away from that calling because of your preferences or prejudices? Or are you serving despite difficulties and hardships and inconveniences? I have to admit, I'm not nearly as patient as God. And I often get very weary hearing all the excuses that people offer why they can't serve God and live for Him. And that's what they are. They're excuses. They're not legitimate reasons. I know that because sometimes, to my own shame, I hear them coming out of my own mouth. And I know they're not based in reality. It's based on convenience and ease of life and preferences and prejudices. They're not legitimate. They're just excuses. And all the time, all we're doing is running, running, running instead of serving the living God. The next question is this. Do we trust God or are we living in despair? Do we really trust Him with our lives? When the mission, the calling gets tough and it forces you to cross the pain line where it's not just easy anymore. This is hard. This may involve actual sacrifice on your part. This may involve... 
involve tears, hours of prayer, the loss of reputation. When you have to cross the pain line, do you despair and turn away? Or do you trust God and push through and step across the line? Think about witnessing for a minute. I am willing to put my year's salary on this. I know Melinda's cringing. It's okay. I am willing to put my year's salary on this. The main reason we don't tell people about Jesus is because we're scaredy cats. We're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid. Our own shadow jumps out and says, boo, someone may not like you for proclaiming Jesus. And we go and run and hide in our bedrooms. We are more afraid of what people think of us than about serving God and about fearing Him. I mean, like I said, maybe I'm wrong. You can challenge me on but that's me. And I know some of you well enough to say, I think that's you. I don't think that's unique to us. I think that's all Christians in this country for the most part. The biggest reason why they don't share Jesus, the most, in theory, in, in, in word, the most important thing in their life is because they're more afraid of what people are going to think about them. Now understand, I'm not asking you for better faith. Is that what Jesus said to the disciples? You need better faith? You need stronger faith? No, what did he say? You have no faith. Biblically speaking, faith is not a matter of amount. It's about what you're putting your faith in. So for example, if I've got a 30-year-old beater with a missing tire and a leaky oil pan, and it overheats every time I turn the AC on, it doesn't matter how much faith I have in that car, I'd best not go on a cross-country road trip. Okay? Because the thing in which I'm putting my faith is pretty lousy. But loved ones, Jesus is no 30-year-old beater. He is the Savior of all men, the Lord of all things. He is worthy of our trust and not our despair. Finally, are we showing concern or indifference to those around us? Are we showing concern or indifference to those around us? Again, the immediate context is about lost people. I mean, you can't get away from that. That's what the book of Jonah is about. God's mission to the Gentiles, leading up to and anticipating the explosion of that mission after the coming of Jesus Christ. But we can broaden this to any context. It can be going to lost people. It could just be showing compassion for one another as the church. Are you like Jonah, more concerned for your own perceived needs and comfort to the point that you're cold and indifferent to the needs of others, even in the ministry God has called you to? Ask yourself these questions. What has more weight in your decision-making, the price of gas or the value of a soul? The time requirements of ministry or the needs of others? The convenience of fitting something into your schedule or the obvious pain and hurting in lives of those around you? When you read about the book of Jonah, we can stand back and be critical. We can stand back and say, boy, what, a, what an arrogant guy. What a selfish man. But this is us. Do you not see that? We are Jonah. I mean, this is us put on display at a different time, a different culture. But his heart is often our heart. We're on run from God, indifferent to lost souls, more willing to die than been inconvenienced and serve God. When it comes down to it, we're all Jonah. But the good news is we've also got Jesus. And he died for Jonah-like sins that are far too often in our lives.
sins that keep us from running. Even as we heard preemptively before the sermon this morning, He didn't just die for those sins. He died to free us from those sins. Friends, we don't have to be Jonah's. We don't have to run away from God. We don't have to flee across the pain line instead of pushing through it. We can be like Jesus and press forward in committed, loving, dedicated, joyful service to our God. That's why Jesus came. Not just to move a bunch of sinners from hell to heaven and leave them as sinful. It was to take sinners from hell to heaven and make them godly in this life to do His work. And that's what we can do as well. We can not only look to the example of Jesus, but trusting that He has made us free. He has made us acceptable to God. He has taken the chains that shackled us and broken them and threw them away. And say, God, I I trust that you've done that. And I trust that serving you by the example of Jesus is going to bring more fulfillment to our life, more joy. Not to mention the fact you're just worth it. We can rise from our beds each day and say, I want to follow my king, not this miserable failed prophet and how I live my life. So this morning, loved ones, that's a hard message, but it's a biblical call in our life. And the question is simply this, what are you going to do? How are you going to live? Are you going to be a Jonah? Or are you going to trust in your Savior and follow like Jesus? Father, we pray, Lord, this morning that as though that question rings in our ears, the Father, even as we stand and sing, even as we leave this place and the immediate fellowship of your people, God, don't let that question leave our hearts. God, may it be an anchor around our necks that weighs us down until we are able to look you in the eye and answer honestly. How are we going to live our life, God? Are we going to be like Jonah or are we going to be like Jesus? Father, I pray that all of us would be able to see at the very least we should be like Jesus. But God, also break us of our sin. Help us to see that we are far more like Jonah than we want to admit because God, it's only in It's only in coming to a sincere, deep place of repentance that we're ever able to step out away from that with joy and grace. God, if we don't ever understand sin, we're never going to understand your love for us. So God, I pray that we would not shrug off the lessons of Jonah too easily. God, may they weigh heavy on our hearts not to lead us to despair, but God, to lead us to repentance and faith in you. And God, in trusting in you and seeing you as the greatest treasure of our lives, that God, we will be able to leave everything else behind in obedience to your call and your mission. God, we pray all these things, trusting alone in Jesus, our Savior and our King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.